Hello everyone, today's readings are from Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 to 30 and Acts 16 verses 11 to 40 which can be found on pages 831 and 784 in your church Bibles. Philippians 1.27 Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here that I still have. And Acts 16, verse 11. From Troas we put out to the sea and sailed straight from Samothrace and on the next day on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. Then we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river, where we were expecting to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a leader, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatria, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword out and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourselves. We are all here. The jailer called the lights, rushed in, and fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what do I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. 
the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they were met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Well, hello everyone again. My name is Scott. Uh, It's good to be with you this morning. I want to start by telling you about the church I was part of when I was growing up. I was a teenager in a a somewhat largest church. We had um, three meetings during a Sunday, one in the early morning, one in the morning and then one at night. Uh, You can guess I didn't go to the early morning one as a teenager. I was at the night service. Uh, but the, the church was full of a lot of people, and because it was so many people and spread over three congregations, there was a lot of people I kind of knew by face. I'd seen them around, but I didn't know their names. And there's one guy in particular. I didn't know his name, but he had a very distinctive feature. Uh, he was an older gent, and he had a mole on his forehead. That was the feature. That, I, that was all I knew about him. Uh, one day, someone came and asked me, do you know Jeff? And I said, No. Who's Jeff? He's the guy with the mole on his forehead. And okay, now I know the guy. Um, the, this person said to me then, Jeff is, re- he's, it's worth getting to know Jeff, worth spending time with him. So, okay, I'll, I'll try and do that. A couple of times, Jeff would come to the, the night meeting at church. So I made a beeline and said, G'day to Jeff. Uh, very, very, very rarely I went to the early morning service. Uh, when I was there, though, I had a chat to Jeff. And so as I got to know Jeff, one thing became clear about him. Jeff is a Christian. You might think, oh, that's very obvious. He's going to church week after week. Of course he's a Christian. And you might be right. But, but, but it's for Jeff, Christianity was really at the core of who he was. See, I got to know lots of things about Jeff. I got to know about, say, for example, Jeff's family. I didn't get to know about Jeff's family because Jeff kept talking about them, though. You mentioned them here and there. I got to know about Jeff's family because his wife told me about them. I got to know about Jeff's work, but again, it wasn't because Jeff really told me about it. All sorts of other people spoke about what Jeff did. When I spoke to Jeff, really, he just wanted to talk about what he was reading in the Bible, or what I was reading in the Bible. I wanted to talk about a sermon that he'd heard recently, an idea about God that he'd been thinking about a lot. Occasionally, I'd find myself in conversation with Jeff and a few other people, and things would uh, turn to talking about uh, movies or TV show areas of my expertise. Jeff kind of lacked interest in these things. It wasn't that he was disapproving of them. It wasn't that he thought they were wrong or bad or anything like that. 
It's just that his passion lay elsewhere. In Philippians, we read this verse. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. I read that and I think of Jeff. Not that Jeff is the only way you can live out this verse, but certainly this verse was what Jeff was like. And today, this is what we're going to be thinking about. This is where we're at. What, what does it mean to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? That's our question for today. And to be honest, we're not going to see heaps of detail today. The rest of the letter really spells out what it means to live in this way. So today, it's more of a broad brushstrokes, more, more big principles rather than nitty-gritty practicals. But we're going to also dig a little deeper because that's where the text goes, that's where the passage goes. We're going to see not just what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel, but we're going to see how do we, how do, we do it? What are, the, what are the two key ingredients to make this work? That's where we're headed today. But before we go there, why don't we pray and ask for God's help as we look at his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your goodness in speaking to us. We are so glad that you're a God who speaks to us and speaks truth to us. Because at your very core, you are one who cannot speak a lie. We thank you for your great love for us, which means you want us to know the truth. So we pray now that as we come to listen to what you have to say through your word, through the Apostle Paul, we ask, Father, please would you help us to hear you clearly. In hearing your voice, we pray that we'd be people who are delighted. And we pray we'd respond with joyful obedience to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Here's the first point for today. The really big thing that Paul wants for the Philippian church is this. Live gospelized lives. Yeah, I made that word up. But you know what I mean, right? It's, 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 it's a life that's worthy of the gospel. A life shaped by the gospel, flavoured in every way by the gospel. A life that's in step with this news that Jesus is both the ruler of the world... And the rescuer of the world. Again, you can see this in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what does that look like? If the Philippian church, if the original receivers of the letter are going to do this, what does it look like for them? How do they live this out? As I said before, that's what really the rest of the letter spells out. But today... We want, a big, we want to take away one big principle, one big principle, and that is this. Jesus must have our highest allegiance. Very literally, the passage is saying this. Worthily of the gospel of Christ, live as citizens. Roman citizenship was something that was very highly prized at the time when the Bible was written. Being a Roman citizen was very beneficial. In fact, you might have picked it up in that reading we just had from Acts 16. Paul is beaten, flogged and thrown in jail. 
And yet, as a Roman citizen, that should not have happened to him. Did he catch that? The magistrates are quite embarrassed that they did this. Roman citizenship is very beneficial. It's prized. And if it's prized in most of the the Roman world, it's especially prized in this place, in Philippi. There's two reasons. Firstly, Philippi was an expat community. And you know what, you know what expats are like? They, they have a great and a heightened sense of, of pride about where they come from. And here, it's a, great, a heightened sense of pride about being Roman. But secondly, on top of that, Philippi is full of Roman soldiers. In fact, they probably got their citizenship because they served as soldiers. And who's more proud of their country than those who fight for their country? Philippi would be a city absolutely buzzing with Roman pride. They love their Roman citizenship. And to these people, Paul writes, worthily of the gospel of Christ, live as citizens. For the church in Philippi, this is really where the rubber hits the road for them. They, they surely value their Roman citizenship highly. They love it. And Paul's not saying you've got to give it up now, but he's saying this, you've got something of far greater value. No longer are you characterized by your Romanness. Now you're characterized by something completely different. Now you are characterized by the gospel. Now your highest allegiance is no longer to Rome. Your highest allegiance now is to Jesus. I love playing cricket. Take a look at this photo. Uh, This is a team I used to play in. Can you spot who I am? I'm in the front row on the far side over there. The guy who looks just silly. Uh, I'm kind of laughing like I'm an evil villain who's just destroyed his arch enemy. I just loved playing cricket. This was taken after we won a grand final. Not that that's very impressive. It's about like the lowest grade of cricket you could have been playing in. So, nevertheless, I love playing cricket. If one of my friends had a wedding... 99% of the time, it clashed with cricket. Both were on a Saturday. And as much as I love playing cricket, I'd I'd skip out on the game. Because there's a higher allegiance there, isn't there? Your friendship to a marriage. As fun as it is to play cricket, there's something more valuable. And that's what Paul is saying here. You guys in Philippi, you might might really love and value, value the fact that you are a Roman citizen... But now you have something that's far more valuable. Now you have a higher allegiance to Jesus. So live a gospelized life. And that's not just something for the Philippians either. It's not just something for you know, the super-duper Christians and the spiritually elite. This is actually something for anyone who calls themselves a Christian, who says they follow Jesus, who trusts Jesus. The call for us all is to live the gospelized life, to have the highest allegiance to Jesus. As I was thinking about it during this week, it occurred to me then, I need to ask a question constantly of myself. That question is this, have I got it clear that my first allegiance, central, my primary allegiance is to Jesus and the gospel? See, nobody swims against the cultural norms 
without being intentional, without being thought out about it. If you're not intentional, you just do what everyone else is doing. You go with the flow. And so I realised I need to be really clear on this front, really clear for myself. Do I let Jesus and the gospel actually have my highest allegiance? For me, this is a useful question just to ponder more and more. And maybe it will be for you too. Because if our first allegiance is to Jesus, then we'll be out of step with the world around us. We'll be out of step with the world around us. Let me give you just one example I quickly thought of for for this. In Australian culture, we have a few unspoken rules, don't we? One of them is, don't talk about religion. Religion is a private matter, keep it to yourself. And of course, there are exceptions to the rule in Australia. You can find people who are happy to talk about it. But by and large, that's part of being Australian. But our first allegiance isn't to Australia or or to Australian cultural norms. Our first allegiance, our highest allegiance, is to Jesus. And if we want to live gospelized lives, well then we actually are going to talk about religion. We're going to push that boundary. Or more precisely, we're going to talk about Jesus. We'll push that boundary a little bit, won't we? So what has then, what has our utmost loyalty? Now as I say this, there are risks, aren't there? Those that are happy to talk about Jesus and find it easy can feel proud. Uh, Those that struggle to talk about Jesus right now can feel guilty. And I just, I don't, I hope that you don't walk away with it, feeling like that, because this is actually about something much bigger than just one example. One simple litmus test uh, won't tell us the whole story. But, but I hope you see that the point here is that if we're going to live the gospelized life, it puts us out of step with the world around us, because our main allegiance is to Jesus. Our primary and first, our highest allegiance is with Jesus. Are we prepared to be out of step with Australian culture? Of course, if you're sitting here and all this Christian stuff, the whole stuff about all this stuff about God, you might not be on board with that just yet. And if that's you, it it might seem like living the gospelized life is just just a little bit extreme. Maybe even too extreme. Too extreme that it turns you off Christianity as a whole. If that's you, I just want to say one thing quickly. Check out Jesus. None of this makes sense unless you first grasp Jesus, you get Jesus. So why not not take the punt and just check him out? Open a Bible. Listen to the things that Jesus says. Look at the way that Jesus lives. And maybe just see if Jesus can convince you. If Jesus can convince you that actually maybe it's worth, maybe it's worth giving him your highest allegiance. Living a gospelized life is really important. This is the one big principle that Paul wants the Philippian church to know and then to do. And as he goes on then in the next couple of verses, we're going to see 
that Paul wants them not just to live this way now, but to keep living that way. To stand firm, not to give up, but to continue in life with Jesus. And that's the second point today. Not just live gospelized life, but keep living a gospelized life. Uh, this is verse 27 again. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you, only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm. That's the key outcome Paul wants to see in the Philippians. Them standing firm. Not moving on to something new or something different. Not moving away from the gospel or being swayed by others to give up on the gospel. But standing firm. Because it's really sad, isn't it, when people stop living for Jesus, when they give up on Jesus? I told you earlier about the church I grew up in as a teenager, a church where I met Jeff. Uh, In that same church, I was at a youth group. Uh, Just yesterday, I, I tried counting, and in the space of 20 seconds, I could come up with five, five other people who were in youth group with me who have given up on Jesus. That's sad, profoundly sad. And there's, there's still a part of me that feels a sense of loss, a loss for them, a loss for Jesus. Maybe you felt that kind of sadness too. Paul doesn't want that to happen for the Philippians. He's saying, guys, stand firm. Keep living the gospelized life. And and then he goes on and he tells them, this is how you do it. There's two things that are important here. The first thing, if you're going to stand for him, if you're going to keep living the gospelized life, you need each other. And the second thing you need is to not be intimidated. If you're following along the outlines, that's points A and B. So firstly, if we're going to keep living gospelized lives, we need each other. You can catch this at at the end of verse 27. Pick it up partway through verse 27. Then when I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. If the Philippians are going to stand firm in the gospel, they need each other. To use the words of the Bible, they need to strive together. They don't do it alone. They do it side by side. You can see this in the emphasis on the oneness language. They stand firm in one spirit, not many. They strive together, not as many for the faith, but as one for the faith. See, division was a real danger for the Philippian church. If you keep reading the letter, you'll see Paul say constantly, you know, stop arguing, don't complain, get along with one another. Kind of sounds like a parent on a long road trip, turning to the back seat where the kids are, right? But then in chapter 4, you can see why Paul is saying this. In chapter 4, we read of a particular argument between two church members. And we won't go into it now, but you can see, can't you, how this is dangerous for the church. The gospel brings them together. But this argument, this division is tearing the church apart. And if they're torn apart... Who will they strive with? They'll lose the very thing that would keep them going in the Christian life. They'll lose each other. 
And they need each other. Because if we live the gospelized life, we're out of step with the people around us. We're out of step with society. How do we keep going? Well, it's because I'm spurred on. It's because I'm striving side by side with you. I need you. If the Philippians are going to stand firm, they need each other. You know the Adelaide Crows motto, don't you? What is it? We fly as one. It sounds nice. It's, I think it's a, quite a brilliant piece of marketing, really. But it's not true. I'm sorry, Crows fans. Uh, the Crows, they don't really fly as one with you. They need you as a fan base because they need your money, sure. But, but that's about it. It's nice to have a packed stadium there and they love when you cheer them along. I'm sure they do. But, but really, you don't fly as one with the players. Let's be honest. If anything, you're kept away from the players by fences and security guards and hefty fines. The Crows don't really fly as one with their supporters. But at TNE, we fly as one. Sorry, Port fans. Sorry. I don't want to alienate you, but you get the idea, don't you? Uh, Here at church, this is where we really fly as one. This is where we need one another. If I'm going to live the gospelized life, I need you. I can't do it alone. And you need me too. Have you ever caught yourself thinking something like this? I don't really bring all that much to church. You know, I come, I'm part of it. If I stopped coming, people would probably notice. Well, at least for a little while. But things wouldn't really change and after a month. Probably forget about me. I don't really need me here. Ever had thoughts like that? Maybe that's the way you feel right now. It's just not true though, is it? We do, we need you. We're we're swimming against the tide and it's not easy. We need your support and your encouragement. Even if all you do is, is, is come and be here with us, your constant presence, it actually spurs us on. We need you to strive with us desperately. The flip side of this is that sometimes we can think we're an island. I can do this on my own. I'm okay. I don't really need church. I know it's helpful and I, I get there most of the time as long as it doesn't clash with anything else in my schedule. But, but really, I get through this by myself. Ever thought like that? Maybe that's the way you feel now too. But again, it's just not true. You can't make it on your own. You need the people around you. You need the church. Maybe you don't feel like that's true for you, but God is telling you it is true for you. Amen. It is true for everyone. We need each other, to strive together. Christianity is not a go-it-alone story. We're a church of over 200 people here, which, yeah, great, praise God, thank God for that. Which means it might seem like it's harder to strive together because, well, I don't know everything about your life and you don't know everything about my life. There's a lot of people I might sit beside and I think, well, 
I like you, but we don't really know each other. So how can we strive together then? What's the sense of living side by side? Don't forget, your presence can speak volumes to us. That's a reality. And secondly, that's one of the reasons why community groups are so important. Maybe I can't know everyone really in depth here, but in my community group, here is a bunch of people, a small group, who I can get to know. I can invest in them. We can share life together. We can bear one another's burdens. We can strive together. So if you're not part of a community group yet, why not join one? Just make a note on your comment cards. We'll try and find a place for you. Stephen and Stuart look after our community groups and they might be thinking right now or having heart palpitations. There's not heaps of room, but that's okay. We'll find a spot. We'll do our best and they'll cope. Why not join a community group? If we're going to keep living the gospelized lives, we need each other. And if we're going to keep living the gospelized lives, we need to not be intimidated. Standing firm in the gospel means not being intimidated. We'll pick it up partway through verse 27 again. It says, Stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. What was it like for Paul when he went to the city of Philippi? Well, he got beaten, flogged, he got thrown in jail, he got kicked out of town. And you know what happened after, left Paul, after Paul left Philippi? Those same things happened again and again and again. And in fact, as he writes this letter, he's writing from his jail cell. And then Paul says in verse 30 to the Philippians that they are going through that same struggle. They're facing opposition and suffering. Probably they're facing the threat of beatings and jail for themselves. So, of course, it's just tempting to give up, isn't it? To throw in the Christian towel. It's hard. But again, that's not what Paul wants for the Philippian church. And so he says, don't let these opponents frighten you. Or, or more literally, he says something like, don't be intimidated by them. When I walk into a room and I see a spider, I freak out. This is me sharing something deeply personal with you, but I get frightened. In fact, for a little while in our household, we had an agreement, unspoken, that if there was a spider, Pip would go for the spider and I would be able to sit back and let it happen. In fact, the very first day that we moved to Adelaide, this happened. I, I, I went to the mailbox got the junk mail out, opened the front page, and what's there looking right back at me? A huntsman spider. I won't, I'm not ashamed to admit there was a little bit of a high-pitched noise that came out of my mouth at that point. My dad was in the room with me, and he found it highly amusing. But once I had that initial fright, once that was over, I had a choice. Right? I could be intimidated by this spider. I could jump up onto the kitchen table and scream and scream until Dad got rid of the spider. Sure, that was an option. Or I could choose to not be that intimidated by it, take a deep breath and get rid of it. Or find the mortine. And that's the kind of thing Paul is saying here, right? Of course there is a natural reaction of fear when opposition comes our way. Yes. But Paul is telling the Philippians, don't be intimidated. Don't let that opposition stop you. 
keep on with the job. Keep living the gospelized life, even when there's opposition. And then Paul says something that for me, I'm not, I'm not expecting. He tells the Philippians that this opposition and this suffering are gifts from God. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. He's not talking about all all kinds of suffering here. This is suffering for being a Christian. If you suffer for being a Christian, if you're opposed for being a Christian, this is God's gift for you. Now, for the Philippians, they might not feel like it's a gift. They might not want the gift. They might want to wrap it up and re-gift it to somebody else. But it is God's gift for them. It's important to note, Paul's not saying that suffering will be the constant, continual experience that every moment of your Christian life you will feel. But he is saying it's the normal experience. Suffering for being a Christian is the normal experience. Expect it. This is God's gift to you. To me, in 2018, living in Australia here, I find this jarring because I'm so used to life that's, well, comfortable and free from suffering. I wonder if the Philippian church would have found this as jarring as I do. In Australia, Christians, we're not used to facing this kind of opposition. We can quickly gloss over this part of the Bible as if it doesn't have anything to say for us. It might not even be true for us. But we need to hear this just as much as the Philippian church did. If we're going to live a gospelized life, we will face opposition. Right now, it might just be the social pressure not to talk about Jesus, to keep him out of the conversation. But that will change and it will get harder. This is not an alarmist coming out in me because it's already gotten harder for some Christians in Australia. Just last year, a Christian woman in Canberra, a young Christian woman in Canberra, lost her job. She lost her job because she held a position on human sexuality that was influenced by the gospel. Are we ready for this kind of opposition? If we're going to keep living the gospelized life, will need to not be intimidated when it comes. And, you know, we have every reason to not be intimidated as well. Because haven't we already seen in Philippians what happens when, when suffering comes? What does God do? Well, it leads to gospel growth. See, he, he's poor and he's stuck in jail. What does it mean for the gospel? It means that the whole, the whole lot of the prison guards, they all hear about the gospel. And it's not just true for Paul. Time and time again in the New Testament, it happens where suffering brings about gospel growth. In fact, human history shows this to be the case. When all the missionaries got kicked out of China, there was a, there was a decent amount of people who, who trusted Jesus, who belonged to Jesus. But when China opened up again and the missionaries were allowed back in, Christianity had exploded across the country despite the oppression of the state. Opposition and suffering are scary, but don't be intimidated because God can use this and God does use this and God will use this 
to make Jesus known in more and more places. And that's good news. So what do we do with all this then? We don't know what the future holds. And although I'm, I'm quite certain that opposition will come in some directions more and more on Christians, we don't actually know where it will come from. We can't be sure yet. But I feel like, again, there is one way now where we will feel this potentially more acutely than anywhere else. That is this social pressure to keep Jesus out of the conversation, to not talk about Jesus. We talk, we, I mentioned this before, but I want to think about it a little, a little again. Let's consider what it would be like now. Imagine being in one of those conversations. It might be with a work colleague, uh, another parent at the school gate, might be with a bunch of your old friends, whatever it is. But, but put yourself in there. You're in the conversation, and there comes a point in the conversation, maybe, maybe it's a time when you can uh, bring Jesus into the conversation somehow. Uh, maybe it's a, it's, it's a point in the conversation where you're asked about your views, your views on a touchy subject that you know won't be received well. What do you do? You could speak up. People aren't going to like what you have to say. Some people in the conversation might turn on you. Even a close friend could become hostile. What are your options? If you're anything like me, you will fear, you feel a natural fear at that point. But as I can see, there really are only two options here. You can be intimidated and retreat and say nothing. Hope the conversation moves along. Or you can not be intimidated. You can speak up. And if you do that, there is a possibility, a probability even, that you'll get hurt. That the outcome will be not pleasant. And if so, that's God's gift to you. Who knows what God will do with this? I mean, you'll get hurt. But maybe God will still use this for something far bigger than you can ever expect. See, today God is calling us to live gospelized lives, lives that are flavored through and through by the news that Jesus is ruler, that Jesus is the rescuer. That's not easy to do. Because if we live those lives, we're out of step with people around us. And so we need to be clear here. Jesus has our highest allegiance. And we need to keep doing that. We need to stand firm in that life. And if we're going to do that, we need two things. If we're going to keep living gospelized lives, we need two things. We need each other. We fly as one. To do that, we need to expect opposition and suffering and yet not be intimidated by it. It's God's gift to us. And who knows how he will use that to make Jesus Christ exalted, glorified and known in this world. This is not easy, friends. So let's, 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 let's pause now, let's pray and ask for the help of our Heavenly Father to live those lives. Let's pray together. Our great God, we praise and thank you that you are God of this world and there is no other. We praise and thank you that even in ways that we can't imagine, 
You use things that are hard for us to make the gospel grow, to help more people see the truth about Jesus, to bring his glory more and more in this earth. We pray then, give us, Father, hearts that desire more and more to live a life shaped by the gospel. Please make it more and more clear in our minds, Lord, that Jesus is our rescuer and our ruler. Help us stand firm in these lives. Help us stand firm with one another. Help us stand firm when opposition comes. Help us do this, Father, that we might honour you and please you in every way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.